You are listening to the Loving Liberty Network, and this is the Liberty Moms Show. Liberty Moms are the original secretaries of defense. We are the real defenders of the home front, and we are there when it comes to defending our families and our communities. We are so thrilled that you're joining us today. Happy Independence Day. Hope you're having a wonderful, wonderful time, a wonderful day. And I want to speak to... Those of us who are really wondering if we really have something to celebrate at this point, especially because many states and have had their, their primary elections across America, and some have done well in Utah, not so much. So I just think it's really important to remember where our freedoms and liberties come from, who gave them to us, and to remember that it is only through sacrifice and some suffering, some real suffering, that we're able to restore and regain these amazing freedoms that Heavenly Father, God, the Creator, have given us. So happy Independence Day. I have two challenges that I want to extend to you today. One is I'd like to invite everyone to stop referring to Independence Day as July 4th. It is July 4th. It's not inaccurate. It is. But I don't think, and I'm open to being wrong, I don't think there is anything particularly magical magical about July 4th. I think what makes the magic is the holiday is really Independence Day. When our country, our founders, fathers and mothers, declared independence from their tyrannical king who sought to control, to sought not just to lead them, but to control them and to govern over them. And they said, we decided we want to be independent and free. And so I extend that when you refer to this amazing holiday, you refer to it as Independence Day. I often talk to people, especially children, but even adults, asking them, what are we actually celebrating? We're celebrating July 4th, Fireworks Day. Uh, barbecues, family fun, and that is all wonderful and awesome, and the founders wanted us to do all that. But the reason that we're celebrating all that, I do not want to be lost in the party. And so let's remember to call it that so we can educate people on what we are declaring independence about. The second challenge I have is I would like to challenge you to memorize the Declaration of Independence. And, yes, I have extended that invitation more than once. I extend it again. I would say without the 27 grievances, it's only 12 paragraphs. So you can memorize the first, I think it's six, I'm not really sure. The first part of the Declaration of Independence is declaring why and what it is really embodying the principles of freedom and liberty. And in, in those, that first part, those first, really first 
two paragraphs specifically, but that first part of the declaration. And then Thomas Jefferson lists the lists, lists excuse me, lists the 27 grievances. And then he lists, you know, why we're doing it and what is to come of it, the purpose and the outcome of it. And so, as I said, there's only 27 paragraphs, and I just want to tell you that it is literally life-changing. Your love of freedom and liberty will completely turn. You will have such a much deeper understanding and a much deeper appreciation of it. So I hope you have fun doing that. And if you only memorize one paragraph a month, you'll have it memorized by next Independence Day. And if you memorize one a week, you'll have it memorized in the, you know, um, you could have it memorized by Constitution Day in September. Speaking of Constitution Day, I'm just going to slip this in here. Remember, September 17, 1787, was the day that the Founding Fathers signed the um, our Constitution. That was when it was voted on, actually, to have our Constitution. And it really is quite an amazing document and really fits as a glove with the Declaration of Independence. They are totally dependent upon each other. One is not whole without the other one. And we will have an amazing celebration, um, days of celebration, September 15th, 16th, and 17th. That's Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Battlepool City Park, Freedom's Light Festival, September 15th, 16th, and 17th. And that will be at Bountiful Park, 400 North, 200 West in Bountiful, all day long into the evening. There is something for everyone. There are at least 35, 40 different presentations happening at once. So you can attend and celebrate with us, but also have a chance to really learn and gain an appreciation and understanding of our amazing Constitution. Meet with fellow patriots and friends. Get to know other people. And really have a fun time learning. You won't realize, I kind of hate to use that word because as a teacher I know it's kind of a turnoff, but you have a fun time engaging in the principles and, and finding out really what is so great about America and learning about the people, learning about the individual men and women who made such a difference and sacrificed so much. So... This is such an amazing holiday, and honestly, the Declaration of Independence, I really think it's my favorite document. I, I really just think it's incredible. It's, it's genius, and it's well, it's articulate, it's well-written, and it's just loaded with amazing principles that are so exciting and enlightening. And, you know, our founding fathers, when they, they came up with this, and, and we know it was mostly Thomas Jefferson, but they didn't make up these principles. They didn't, they didn't just like, oh, let's just create some new ideas. They were enshrined, and these principles are enshrined in the Declaration and in the Constitution, but they were, they were things that the Founding Fathers were very aware of. These are principles that they had studied and learned about in history and philosophy. They are principles that had already been proven, tried and proven, and they knew that they worked. And they brought together more of these principles of liberty in one document than had ever been done before. And so they 
they knew they were taking a chance, but they really believed that but by bringing these together, looking through history, looking through the eyes and the lens of history of knowing they had worked before and knowing what had not worked, that they felt very confident that this would work. And I think often we kind of take for granted what we have. And so I invite everyone to learn about the Declaration, read it, study it, and really take a few minutes and have everyone in your in your party read one one paragraph, one stanza of the Declaration. And, and that's a great way to add that into your celebration. The danger of not of taking for granted or not remembering it is it actually causes us to go into a slave mentality. We get used to things being so comfortable. We get it, things to being easy, and we get really complacent. And we start to want the government to take care of us and to do more and more for us. And then we end up giving power to the government to control us, and they end up ruling over us instead of serving us. And so I want to address this amazing document. And I want to start by talking about Thomas Jefferson, the main author of the Declaration. He was born in Virginia. And when he was born, George Washington was 11 years old. And in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin was 37 years old. He had already invented the Franklin stove. He was already the postmaster general. And Sam, Sam Adams, who eventually became known as the father of the Constitution, was at the time when Jefferson was born, he was graduating from Harvard with a master's degree, and he was 21 years old. And John Adams, who was Samuel's cousin, he was only eight years old and at the time that Jefferson was born. And then um, John Jay was not even born yet. And Patrick Henry was seven years old. And James Madison wasn't born. And he was also on the committee to write the declaration. So I think that just kind of gives you a little bit of a picture of context of when Thomas Jefferson was born. And he, he was, as I said, he was born in Virginia. And his mom was from the Randolph family. So she was from a, a really quite prominent family. And his dad was a member of the House of Burgess. And so he was well-respected and well-acknowledged. And his dad, he, according to Thomas Jefferson, his dad was the hardest working man that he ever knew. And he was also the strongest man. And his father did have such a great impact on Thomas Jefferson. And he really taught him from a very young age the commitment that was necessary to building this great American commonwealth, that it took hard work and it took a real commitment to those principles. And he really taught Thomas Jefferson about the principles. If you think about how important principles are and how effective they are and efficient they are, when is a time, remember the last time that gravity just didn't work. It just was one of those days where gravity was off and it just wasn't working. Never. There's no such thing. Principles always work. They never fail us. And if we stick with those principles, they will work. And we need to restore those principles of liberty to our nation. So we will have a 
prosperous and free nation again. You can imagine, as Thomas Jefferson at 14 years old, how shocked he was when his father suddenly died. Just That made Thomas Jefferson, be, he became the head of the household. And he was in charge of this estate, and he was charged with managing it. And because of the will of, that his father left him, it did provide him with the ability to go to college. And he initially learned Latin and Greek, and it gave that gave him the opportunity to read the classical works from their original languages. So you can tell this guy is really into education, and he loves learning. He was 16 years old when he went to the college William and Mary, and he studied. He studied very hard. He was very brilliant, and he loved study. He really had a love affair with study and learning. And he got to study under George Wythe, who at the time was really um, an acclaimed attorney and judge. And this is what Thomas, or excuse me, what George Wythe said about Thomas. Actually, this is what Thomas said when he was under George Wythe. I was held in pursuit of knowledge never fearing to follow the truth and reason to whatever result they led. I love that quote so much because it speaks volumes about Thomas Jefferson. He was bold in pursuit of knowledge, never fearing to follow the truth. Oh, if we had more people who sought truth today. He was a truth seeker and a truth speaker. And he would follow that truth and reason to whatever results they led. He wasn't looking to be right about what he already believed, but he sought to find truth and reason. He learned five languages. Well, one day he slipped, he slipped away from his studies, which he loved to do, to go to visit the House of Burgess and listen to the debates and the, what was happening there. And... Now, this was in 1765, and this, he went in there, and when he got there, he heard Patrick Henry, this amazing great orator, and he was a member of the House of Burgess elected, and he was speaking on the Stamp Act, and so he, spoke, he stood and spoke Patrick Henry, and he said, if, there be, if this be treason, make the most of it, and he gave this great speech, and Thomas, Je Thomas, Thomas Jefferson said that Patrick Henry was the greatest orator ever and that he said something happened to him that day when he listened to Patrick Henry speak and he listened to these words. It literally changed his life. It really kindled a flame in his soul. And he came to say it was the most important day of his life. And so that really set him on his course with a love of liberty, and it just put a fire in his soul for it. And he became, Thomas Jefferson got admitted to the bar, and he was very accomplished, and he was very confident. He was a very competent man because he was accomplished, and he was very, very intelligent, and he could carry on a conversation with anyone. But he was very shy around the young ladies. He actually was quite shy, especially those who he was enamored with. And so he really fell in love with this young lady, and he wanted to marry her, and so he kind of memorized a proposal to her. And then he went and met with her, and he kind of stumbled 
through this proposal and he it was really a disaster and he it wasn't clear and so he kind of left embarrassed and and um just just humiliated and they practiced and worked for a couple more weeks and he went back later to propose to her again but then he was not long after found that to much of his surprise his best friend had proposed and they were engaged and his best friend had no idea that Thomas Jefferson was also interested in her and um, so he found out that they were engaged to each other and his best friend asked him to be his best man at the wedding of a woman that he wanted and to propose to himself so this broke his heart frankly it was very very discouraging it broke broke Thomas Jefferson's heart it took him eight years to get up to muster the courage and the commitment to propose again but he did propose to Martha who his husband had died when she was not even 20 years old so she was a widow at such a young age but he did propose to Martha and she did accept and they did get married and he built this amazing Monticello for his new bride and Thomas Jefferson was in a discussion with a traveler one day who was traveling from New England and he was very well educated, very intelligent himself. And they got into this conversation and he didn't, the traveler didn't know who Thomas Jefferson was. Of course he knew who Thomas Jefferson was, but he didn't know he was speaking to Thomas Jefferson at this time. And he said, and this, I want to share this quote with you because it's quite, it's quite brilliant. He said, when he spoke of law, I thought he was a lawyer. And we talked about mechanics. I was sure he was an engineer. And when he got into medicine, it was evident that he was a physician. And when he discussed theology, I was convinced he must be a clergyman. When he talked of literature, I made up my mind that I had run against a college professor who knew everything, which was practically true. And so you can see that Thomas Jefferson did do an excellent job in educating himself and making sure that he was well prepared for the future. Now, years went by, because this, if you remember, this was kind of 1864, and then years passed, and then we had the Battle of Lexington and the Battle of Con Concord, the shot heard around the world where the king of England sent his, their own king, sent his army in to literally go up against their own people. Can you imagine the government going up against its own people? The government usurping power and authority and arms against its own people. And so the um, American blood had been shed by the British government, their own government. Now this is after the Battle of Bunker Hill. So a lot of things had happened. So now we're in 1775. And all the civil governments were suspended by the king. He had replaced the original governors with his own governors, with British governors, not the elected ones of America, the colonists. Boston and many other cities were living under martial law. Jefferson was sent, he was elected, and sent to Philadelphia to the Second Continental Congress. And he was the second youngest delegate there, John Jay from New York, was the only delegate that was younger than Thomas Jefferson. 
He was born a year after. And then he, Thomas Jefferson ended up having to leave during it because Martha, his wife, and his mother were so sick that he feared that they would die. And so he left to go take care of them and make sure that they were okay. And then 1776 came, and in January of 1776, things were not looking good for America. And the word came that the America to the Continental Congress that the American expedition to capture Quebec had failed. General Montgomery was killed. Benedict Arnold, who was still a true patriot at that time, he had been a hero in this campaign, but he was wounded. And Jefferson was extremely concerned about the bad news from Boston. Washington had lost 4,000 of his soldiers. Many of those that did remain were very sick. Others were disheartened, as you can imagine. When their enlistments were up, a mere handful re-enlisted. George Washington was losing his army. And since the British would not come out and fight, Washington reported that the relentless Americans passed much of the time simply fighting amongst themselves. They weren't engaged in combat, so they weren't engaged in fighting the war against their enemy. They were more engaged with fighting each other because they were disheartened, depressed, disillusioned. So this was a very dismal setting, and Thomas Jefferson commenced on what would turn out to be one of the most important years of his life. He would have scarcely suspected it at the time. Sadly, his mother died on March 31st, which was a great blow and very disheartening to, to, to Thomas. He suffered excruciating migraine headaches for the next five weeks after his mother died. So he was really suffering from the disappointment, mourning the death of his mother, then physical ailments with having these horrible migraines. I've never had one, but I've heard they're just life-altering and horrible. But in amongst that, in spite of his mourning and in spite of his migraines, he wrote three separate drafts for the Virginia Constitution, Constitution during the next five weeks. He was robbed of his pleasure of delivering them personally to the legislature, which he really wanted to do in Williamsburg, because he was sent again as a delegate to go to the Continental Congress. And so he arrived in Philadelphia on May 14th, and he had his third draft of the Virginia Constitution in his pocket. He really, really longed to be in Williamsburg. But duty called, and he went to Virginia, or to Philadelphia. So the longer he stayed in Philadelphia, the worse he felt. He really had this intense anxiety to be in Williamsburg, in Williamsburg. but he wrote a letter he even wrote a letter requesting that he be given a leave of absence from Congress so he could go help them write his um, the Virginia Constitution. So I hope that you will stay with us. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back.
are listening to the Loving Liberty Network, and this is the Liberty Mom Show. Liberty Moms are the original secretaries of defense. We are the real defenders of our home front. We're so happy that you stayed with us. We hope you're having a wonderful Independence Day. And we are just talking about Thomas Jefferson, how amazing his story is, how very human he and all the founding fathers were very human. And yet they were, ama- they were able to tap into these amazing principles of liberty and to put them into a document that would really create such an amazing nation and give us these opportunities that we have to fulfill our God-given missions here on earth. So as we were saying, Thomas Jefferson really wanted to go back to Williamsburg. He had written the Constitution, his third draft. He really wanted to go present it. It wasn't happening, and he just his heart was there, and he's like, I want to go back. He wrote a letter requesting permission to go. Fortunately, his request was denied, even though he really wanted it. And you can imagine they wanted to let him go because they wanted to, but they denied it because they said, we need you here. Can you imagine if he would have not been there? But he he was there in Philadelphia, and he had literally the greatest honor of his life the privilege of writing the Declaration of Independence. Because he was there, he was able to be called on this committee of five. He was disappointed, he was frustrated, but he did what he was asked to do. He stayed and he was fulfilled really what I think is his divine mission. It was not insignificant. It was nothing but incredibly significant. On June 7th of 1776, Richard Henry Lee was one of the delegates of Virginia also, and he introduced this resolution calling for the complete separation from Great Britain. He said, let's completely sever ourselves. I want to again put this in perspective because this had been 11 years that the founders had been trying to negotiate with the king and with the parliament on allowing them to be self-governing but still be part of the British crown and allow things to continue on as they had for 180 years. So they worked for 11 years. I just want to ask you, how many times have you worked on one thing for 11 years and stayed committed to it? 11 years. And they're not done. So they decide. Richard Lee, Henry Lee is like, we're done. Okay, we've tried for 11 years. Let's go for a complete all-out separation. So several of the states really couldn't make that decision on their own. So they needed, they asked for a postponement because they needed to get a final decision from their states, their colonies, in order to vote. And meanwhile, they didn't want to waste any time, so they called a special committee to be formed to write a formal Declaration of Independence. Now, as you know, the committee consisted of Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, also Roger Sherman and Robert Livingston, and of course, Thomas Jefferson. So they had these five committee members. And they got together, and you know, if you've ever tried to do things by committee, it's not efficient, but sometimes it's necessary. But in this case, they got together, they tried to write this draft. You can imagine, have you ever written a paper with five people? It's just ridiculous. It really isn't 
it's not really doable. So Jefferson immediately proposed to John Adams. He's like, you should write the initial, initial draft, and then we'll kind of add in from there. And John Adams described what happens by saying, Jefferson proposed to me to make the draft. And I said, this would be John Adams, I will not, you should do it. And so that Jefferson said, oh, no, why will you not do it? You ought to do it. And Adams said, I will not. And so Jefferson says, why? And Adams says, reasons enough. And Jefferson says, well, what can be your reasons? And Adams says, reason first, you are a Virginian, and a Virginian ought to appear at the head of this business. And reason second, I'm obnoxious, I'm suspected, and I am unpopular. You are very much otherwise. Reason third, you, are, you can write 10 times better than I can. So Jefferson said, well, if you are decided, I will do as well as I can. So Thomas Jefferson was always a little bit jealous of what a great orator John Adams was. John Adams was always a little jealous of what a great writer Thomas Jefferson was. They both had their strengths. They were both amazing at what they did, but they were not great at both. Such is life for all of us. So it's pretty amazing that um, Thomas Jefferson did take this assignment on, and he did really just an incredible job. I just don't know how, if you've ever read it, if you've ever studied it, you can possibly deny that he did just an incredible job. As I said, it's one of my very, very favorite um, documents of all time. What Thomas Jefferson managed to do, which I think is quite amazing, is he put eight of the principles of the Declaration and the Constitution in the first two paragraphs. He just put them right in there. This was clearly by design. And he made a point to say sound government, which is what we want to create, must be based on self-evident truths. These are not things that are so deep and complicated that we can't figure them out. They're, if you're going to have a good government, it must be based on self-evident truths. They're so rational, so obvious, so morally sound that their authenticity is beyond reasonable dispute. You cannot deny them. Second one is the equal station of mankind. Everyone is equal. And it is obvious and inherent aspect of the laws of nature and nature's God that we are all God's creations, that we're all equal. That we are equal in our rights, equal in our justice, and equal in the sight of God. Those are absolutely essential to a surviving and prosperous government. Fourth is that our rights are inalienable. They cannot be taken away without violating or offending the creator who gave them to us. Man can take our rights away and does, but that only comes under the judgment of the creator if we do that these rights are not something that are given to us by our society or by our government or by other men, that these rights are given to us by God, that we must acknowledge that there are certain rights that are unalienable. And they made it clear that these rights are life, the right to liberty, and the right to pursue what we ought to pursue, to seek our own happiness or our own 
personal missions on earth, which includes inherently owning property. Because again, you cannot have life and liberty if you cannot own property. Of course, there's a very good reason that Thomas Jefferson and the founders did not want to put property in there because they were still living under the tyranny of slavery, which was completely unconstitutional and a violation of the Declaration of Independence. And they knew that you couldn't own another person, that that was a violation of freedom and, and liberty. And so they used this phrase, which that had been used in times past, of pursuing our happiness, which included property ownership. And you could pursue that happiness on one condition, as long as it did not violate the inherent right of other people, that your rights ended where someone else's rights began, that you didn't have a right to pursue your happiness in violation of the inherent rights of others. Six one is the reason for a nation to even be organized was to assure the rights of the people to be protected and preserved. It is essential to have a government because without, if you have sheer freedom, you end up having no freedom at all because we know freedom to do anything anybody wants to is not freedom. It's actually anarchy. And everyone who is free to take away other people's rights we end up with total anarchy. So we need a government, some kind of government, to be in place to protect the rights of the individual people and to protect those and to preserve them. And the seventh principle that he put in there is that it must happen by the consent of the people. We cannot possibly um, have a government that is free if it's run by tyranny, or by those who seek to run and control and govern other people. And so it must be by the consent of the people. So that is a very important principle that we must consent to that, which will bring up uh, voting being the way that we consent. And we'll talk about that hopefully in a few minutes. The eighth principle being if a government ever fails to protect the rights of the people for whatever reason, then it is the right and it is literally the, the duty of the people to regain control and to either start new guards, to implement new guards, or to create a new form of government which will ensure the people's safety, prosperity, and happiness. And so that those are the eight principles that Thomas Jefferson put out right at the very tippy-top, the very beginning of the, of the Declaration. And so they got together. It's just a, this is just so amazing and so beautiful. And you, you look and see how many societies um, have ever been able to put these together. Who, I ask you, could have done a better job than Thomas Jefferson? I really believe that it was his calling and his mission. And while he was studying history and going to college and to school, he studied ancient Israel. And he made this amazing discovery. And at one time, the Israelites, they practiced these 
in the earliest times this most efficient representative government where they used all of these principles in their government. And when they would follow these patterns of these principles, they flourished. They were free, they were prosperous, and they were extremely productive and prosperous. But he also noticed whenever they diverted from these principles, it was a disaster. They ended up going into slavery and into bondage. And he would refer to these principles as the ancient principles. So whenever you hear Thomas Jefferson or any of the founders refer to the ancient principles, this is what they're talking about. They're these ancient principles of Israel. And they were these eight principles outlined in the first two paragraphs of the Declaration. He also discovered the Anglo-Saxon also followed these ancient principles. They discovered them and they followed them. And this was the in the 8th century A.D. And so he, Thomas Jefferson, spent 17 days composing and revising this rough draft. And really, most of the time was spent writing the first and the last portion because the, seven, the 27 grievances all were grievances that he had put into the Virginia Constitution. So he literally, it took him maybe a day to copy, and, you know, he didn't have the copy and paste like we have nowadays. He had to rewrite that, no copy machines. So he had to rewrite that into his his 27 grievances in the Declaration, but, but that he'd already written. So he already had the, the mindset for that. So he really spent a lot of time writing the first section, putting these um, eight principles in. So on July 2nd of 1776, Congress assembled in an informal committee of the whole to discuss Jefferson's document, which he called the Manifesto of Freedom. Now, there were a lot of 187 changes were suggested and debated. They wanted to make all these changes. Now, one of the, one of the parts of the declaration that Thomas Jefferson wrote in there that is not there was his declaration about the evils of slavery and called upon the king and called him out for this evil institution that he had perpetrated upon the American colonies and called upon him to eradicate it and rid England and America of this evil institution. And that tells you where Thomas Jefferson stood on slavery. Now, of course, as they got together and discussed, there were those in Congress who said, you got to take that out. It will offend the, the South states. And they will not vote for the, the declaration if we, um, or for freedom from England if we leave that in there. So most sadly, um, such a great loss, they did take that out. But it is also something I think is worthy of reading on Independence Day. And so the, on the evening of the 4th of July is when Congress became an official body and they finally approved Jefferson's modified um, document. There were over 60 changes made, but not one of them were made to the ancient principles. None of them. And so after approval, and I just wanted to just kind of mention really quickly that John Adams, he wrote home to Abigail, as he often did, and he said, July 2nd will go down in history as one of the greatest days because that is when they kind of informally voted. 
but they we we celebrate July Fourth as Independence Day because that's when they officially formally um, voted for independence. So neither John, John or Thomas Jefferson nor Congress called this declaration this document the Declaration of Independence. That it was not known as that by any of them at the time. It was the people who later gave it its name as the Declaration of Independence. So after it was voted on and approved, it was sent to Mr. Dunlap to be printed. And a copy, because he was a printer, the copy was ordered engrossed, which means that it had room for the signers to sign their names. So the original one doesn't have room for that, and it doesn't have their names on it. The engrossed copy has the room, and then they made um, the copies with the signatures of the signers. And it is, unfortunately, the original copy was not ever preserved, but the engrossed copy is preserved for everyone to see in the archive building of the Washington, in Washington, D.C. And um, the declaration was published by, immediately, by the Pennsylvania Evening Post. And that was on two days later. And they made copies, 200 copies, and they sent them out to the committees of safety in the different states. And it was signed by John Hancock and president of the Congress. And he sent that out, all 200 copies out to the committees of safety. And the very first published reading, or excuse me, public reading, was by the Committee of Correspondence in Philadelphia. And that happened two days later on July 8th. And when they went out and publicly read that, um, the people cheered, bells rang, the people celebrated all night long. People were so behind this. They were so excited. They had lived under martial law for years, and they were excited to say, we're done, we're through, we're independent. Um, of course, Thomas Jefferson was not initially identified as the author of this document for many months. Because and the delegate, the name of the delegates who signed it, were also concealed for months. But of course, once they signed it and then it got out, it did get out to the British, the King, and so then it became well known. Um, they affixed at the very end of the Declaration one of the most beautiful parts, and for the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They knew what they were doing. They knew that this would undoubtedly be considered not only treason, but high treason. They would have been tried and convicted of treason if they were had been captured and found initially. The way that they sentenced people to high treason was they were hanged by their heads until they were unconscious or barely conscious. Then they were cut down and revived, and then they were disemboweled and then revived, which is horrible. Then they were beheaded, and they would take their, their organs, and they would light them on fire, and they burn them and boil them in oil. And then they would cut them up, and they would scatter them all around because they wanted there to be no lasting resting place for the offender, and they would remain, their resting place would remain unnamed.
forever and unhonored and unknown. And that would be truly the case of every single one of them if America had not won this great victory. But thank goodness and thank to the creator and to divine providence, they did win with great sacrifice. And that took another eight years that they fought the war. So in total, that is 20 years. So sometimes we get frustrated and we get discouraged on our battles in fighting to restore our freedom and to be a free state, a free community, and a free nation again. But how many of us have fought for 20 years? Um, I would like to share with you one of my favorite quotes from John Adams. This was in the letter that he wrote to Abigail Adams. I just find it so interesting. He's writing this love letter to Abigail. They wrote these love letters to each other often, and they had such an amazing and fun relationship with each other. And at the end of the letter to Abby, Abigail, he writes to us, he writes posterity explanation mark. Posterity, you will never know how much it costs the present generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you will make good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. I think he just nailed it there. And I, like I said, it's one of my favorite quotes because it is speaking to us. He saw us. He did not do this for him. He could have lived out his life and made it and managed. But he made those sacrifices and gave it all as all the founders did for us so that they could give to us their posterity a chance of living free. Let us be clear of the difference between freedom and liberty. We have freedom given to us and granted to us by God. We are free to do what we want, but truly liberty is free to do what we ought. And we are truly liberated with freedom to be free to do what we ought to do and what We free ourselves from really the bondage of the world, this bondage of sin, the bondage of immorality, when we are truly liberated. We're free to choose those things, but as long as we choose goodness and we choose wisely, then we are liberating ourselves from all of the evil, evil. So this is a gift that has been passed to us of liberty to future generations. If we lose our history, We lose our understanding of it. We will lose our liberty. So I implore each of you to teach history. Teach the good and the great and even the weaknesses of the founding fathers and founding mothers. We can all relate to that because none of us are perfect. We can acknowledge as heroes imperfect people. And we can acknowledge they weren't perfect, but acknowledge the gift that they gave us. And this nation was not really founded on people. It was founded on principles. We must all learn those principles, and we must adhere to those principles. If we do, we can restore our nation. Our nation will will stay. It will endure if we are willing to stand up and fight and stand up and restore those. So it means we must restore the moral compass. This 
is kind of a fight. We're losing our moral compass as a nation. We must go back to our moral foundation. Benjamin Franklin said, in the beginning of the, co- the contest with Great Britain, when we were susceptible to danger, we, were, we had daily prayer in the room for divine protection. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. Have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? Remember, my friends, that we are the guardians of our liberty. Thank you.